0: On today's Shift Daily Podcast, Russia's Victory Day Parade was a bit of a dud. It doesn't mean the war is slowing down, though. We get understanding with the help of Dr. Hannah Shalist, Ukrainian foreign policy expert. She updates us on the conflict as Russia ramps up missile strikes in and around Odessa, Ukraine, where Hannah resides. Canada's health care workers are burned out and they need help. Dr. Ivy Lynn from the University of Ottawa helps us understand why our health care workers' mental health has never been lower and why they need help to succeed. A lack of data has set our healthcare system back very far in this conversation too. And do you have a tattoo? Would you like to get one or do you regret it? Ryan shares the story of his latest tattoo that he got last weekend.
1: This is the shift podcast.
0: I think tattoos go one of two ways. I think they're, beautiful artwork that's timeless or they're dreadful and a dolphin on your ankle. (laughs) I don't know. I I have a thing with tattoos and I I don't, I don't want them. I always am worried. I mean, when I look back at my life, I'm so incredibly different than I was back in the day. Tattoos. Yes or no. And if you have one, I want to know. 877 399 9898. And uh, if you've ever had a tattoo disaster, of course, you're always welcome. <laughs> is there one you regret? Tattoos. Are you for them? Would you get one? Do you have them? Let me know what you got. 877 399 9898. Last week, Ryan O'Donnell went and got a tattoo. That tattoo that he got is listed at shiftheads.ca in the Facebook group um which I found really funny because this is context about people and I'm gonna call someone out doesn't matter the name but Ryan literally says you know this is the guardian of the O'Donnell O'Donnell clan um and it's a the knight in a suit of armor and someone commented and this is the internet this is exactly why we protect our Facebook group so much you got a figurine on your arm okay uh, you're funny um, no, actually it's a, uh, it's very symbolic with sample provided <laughs> night and, uh, and crest of O'Donnell clan. Um, you got it last week. I've known about this for a, for a long time now. First, let's talk about your tattoo because I want to know if everyone else gets them. This is your second one. That's, that's pretty big. So tell me, right. Um, are you happy? What'd you get? And explain it. Well, I'm definitely happy. Uh, so yeah, to describe it,
1: um, the best way I can think of it is, If you go to an old, old church, like one that was built so long ago, there's usually a stained glass image of maybe a saint or in some especially European cathedrals and churches, a knight, uh, for whatever reason that may be. And what I wanted to do was to get something that marked my Irish history with the O'Donnell clan from Ireland, with the imagery of essentially that stained glass image Uh, aesthetic. And it took me a while to figure that out. I always wanted an O'Donnell tattoo. Uh, My family history means a lot to me and to my family members who have come and passed. And it took me forever to figure out that I didn't just want the shield, which, by the way, my family crest is a a shield with an arm holding a cross on it. Um... I I wanted to get something more than that. And then eventually I stumbled across a tattoo artist in Calgary. I'll shout her out. uh, Splitting smoke on Instagram, Janine Scott. She, uh, specializes in medieval Catholic imagery. And when I saw her work, the, this, the, the, like it just clicked. And what she has created for me is a knight in full plate armor, standing on a bed of vines with a, uh, broad sword in one hand and a my family shield in the other um and it looks like it was drawn 300 years ago it looks medieval it it has that absolute vibe the detail it's I, i i'm staggered that people are able to uh put this thought onto page and then onto skin like that it's fascinating and it was quite a positive experience we chatted the whole time and she was great mm-hmm. about um i complain when i'm in pain it's like how i deal with being in pain i have a pretty decent pain tolerance but i vocalize it and she was pretty good with dealing vocalize with it. Saying, oh my I god vocalize you know what it reminds it. me
0: of uh the 40 year
1: old virgin
0: ah, Kelly yeah
1: exactly <laughs> that's what it felt that's exactly how i deal with pain is uh, oh. is talking right um and yeah, it's uh, it's now here, and it's cool because I remember after my first tattoo, which is music related, my dad, my mom, my family, uh, they were like, "Oh, that looks cool," but you know, "Oh, you got a tattoo," but this one, it's like, "Oh my god, that is amazing." So mm. I think it's been a mission accomplished for sure. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it is a very special. And it's funny, even as much as I love it, I still am getting used to it. It's still a little weird to like look and see this on you. It, it, mm-hmm. No matter how excited you are for a tattoo, it will always be a little bit of a whoa when you notice it for the first time and really start well, to notice it.
0: That's one of the things about tattoos is on your forearm. So for you, it's upside down. Uh, for everyone else, it looks right side up. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that's the question, right? Is do you get it so you can, so you can see it and read it? And I always wonder that about people who get their backs done with letters and words and stuff. I mean, do you yeah. get it written in reverse so you can read it in the mirror? Like, yeah. um, I, I think that's really funny. And it's, uh, people, I think sometimes forget that they have tattoos in some places because you don't see them. Um, mm-hmm. and that part is, uh, kind of fascinating. But I just, I, I look at, the artwork, and I look at where you're from, and I don't know if you ever regret family stuff, right? Yeah. And the, you know, so that that's a good one. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Tattoos, yes. Angel from Hamilton. I have eight tattoos. Um, Ooh, nice. BK, do you have a do you have a, a tattoo there, Brendan, or no?
1: No, no tattoos here.
0: Hmm. No. Would you ever consider it? Uh
1: maybe. Who knows my map outlook of changes no i don't think i would get a map of florida in the least <laughs> um no desire and or connection to florida my well, mom mom's lives there, there. well I she know, lives there but i, like I, I your mom. don't care about the state mm-hmm. she just happens to be in it
0: oh okay i um, think uh, it's fascinating i mean would you get tattoos i try to think of what would i get for a tattoo mm-hmm. i would get something with um with with the kids right I know my, um, the mother of my children, uh, she has a sort of kind of a trifecta triangle thing that she wants to get, which is her and the kids. And, and, uh, I, I am standing by my opinion that waiting until they're 18 yeah, matters and it could be a great way to celebrate their 18th birthday if they want, if they still want to do that with their mom. I, I just don't know if I, I'm okay with it so soon because 15 and oh, 17 eight, to me seem. No. Yeah. Like that seems way early. Right. But at the same time, it is one of those family conversations. And, and would you get it? I know that Melanie got her first tattoos and um, you know, they, they, they're, they're perfect. I, I I always take the opinion and I'm not slagging on you for getting tattoos or I'm not, I mean, I love the symbolism behind it. And I also get private conversations with you to understand some of the meaning behind it for you personally, the, but I always wonder, I just, I just always wonder about Regret, and I'm so different today than I was five years ago and ten years ago. My life is so different. Belief systems are different. Everything is so incredibly different. Um, and I wonder about that. But there, I also have this question too. I went to I went to the mall once to get a haircut, and I was like, "Ah, oh, I'm just going to stop into this salon here and get a haircut." And uh, and just thinking, I mean, it was a salon, and then do you have anybody available? And they're like, Oh, absolutely. We've got Susie available. And I should, that should have been my clue. Right. Uh, I found out after she was halfway through my hair, she's like, Oh, it's my first day. You're my first haircut ever. (laughs) I just got out of school and it was a terrible haircut. The point I ring that up is because of the fact that I, there's always a first tattoo. Right. When I had my, um, sinuses done and I had surgery and I had to go to the rhinoplasty doctor, the, the bone nose doctor, he's, he, he was, he says, do you have any more questions? And I said to him, I said, you've done this before, right? <laughs> like, this isn't your first one, is it? I mean, I think that's a valid question when you're getting a tattoo. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. And this is what I worry about. I got a tattoo in my late teens, says Trucker Dan. I've regretted it ever since. One fine day, I'm going to do a really nice cover-up. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a memory from so long ago. Richie's in Vancouver. Hey, Richie. How are you, you doing tonight, Shane? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, sir. Um, tattoos, is this, I know that you're going to share with us one that you're working on. Is this your first one that you've had, or do you have more?
2: Uh, yeah, it'll be my first tattoo, and I was thinking about it about, about maybe, maybe not getting it, but I probably will get it because I'm... Uh, I'm going to be seventy two years old pretty soon, so you know oh, that's beautiful and uh, i i what happened to me was I was a canadian guy i uh, I was I lived from, born in miandoza area in Manitoba, but when I was like six months old, I had to go live down in San Francisco, so I mm-hmm. was bouncing between San Francisco and Vancouver my entire life but anyway when i got to when I was living down there. I fell in love with the Grateful Dead like big time, right? And So you uh, would have been
0: around f- your mid to late teens, early 20s right when that San Francisco psych rock stuff was happening. Like you got to be you got to witness some of the good stuff.
2: Oh yeah, I was like 15, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 something like that. And, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I I just had the time of my life down there, and I, I didn't drink any, I didn't smoke or, or drink or anything like that, but I loved LSD, and I took LSD almost every weekend for about five years. And, anyway, I just fell in love with all the whole San Francisco, uh, uh, you know, sound like the airplane and Quicksilver and New Riders of the Purple Sage, but 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 the dead was just oh i just loved them and anyway they, they have a lot of a lot of really cool artwork that i've been seeing lately you know like a lot of begonias begonias and things like that so yeah. I, I think i think i'm thinking of yeah i'm thinking of getting one done because uh, i'm not going to live forever but uh, I, like that. I i i i just love I, you know the weird thing about it is that when this pandemic came along um i was just retiring at that time and uh and I just, I just decided, you know what? I haven't listened to the dead in like almost twenty years, like, like religiously, like I used to. And I, in the last two years, that's all I, I've been listening to a, a lot of Bob Dylan and a lot of uh, the whole, the whole '60s thing. It's like a, I, I'm in a, a, a time machine almost. I can go right, right back there and do yeah. like things again. I haven't
0: missed a beach. <laughs> See, I love that. I love how it takes you back to that place, right? It's not even the Grateful Dead so much as the significance of that time in your life. So that's beautiful. And Richie, I love the fact that you're doing it in your 70s, man. This is cool. Thanks so much for the phone call.
2: Thank
0: you. Uh, Richie's in Vancouver, 72, getting his first tattoo, and the Grateful Dead. And he said, "But that's that's an era, right? Like he's he's going, flashing back to an to an era." of his life. And I suppose if I loved it, I could have get a Sudbury tattoo. Cause I love my time doing radio in Sudbury. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a giant nickel. Um, but you know, to, to the point though, I mean that that's kind of a cool perspective, right? Um, texts from Manitoba have five tattoos and I'm getting all of them removed. Stupid youth cost as a thing, right? Find that prohibitive like as being yeah well
1: they're definitely expensive you can get cheaper tattoos for sure but i mean you also have plenty of time to save for them i booked this in january like first week of january so i mm-hmm. had plenty of time to get ready for it and um yeah mine was very expensive but that's because i went to a very very professional artist i know a guy who's got a back tattoo of Judas Priest's painkiller the the the, the artwork for that album it literally stretches from his neck to his butt it's full color. It's got to be. Hmm. It's got to be eight thousand dollars.
0: Oh my god! At least,
1: at least. it's got to be. It's got to be. Maybe even more. Um, I like the idea of having a a lot of of smaller ones. I don't think that for me, I'm not going to have like a giant piece. Also because I don't really want to go for like. <laughs> my artist was telling me that someone just finished, uh, her third and final six hour session for a back tattoo. How much is an 12 hour? Twelve hours. An hour, two hundred bucks.
0: Okay. It's a lot of yep. money, man. Hey Chef Show, best tattoo, t- best tattoo ever. I used to know an extremely sexy Harley riding US Marine that had the US grade A meat stamp tattooed on his hip from London. Now I knew uh I knew somebody who had Triple A Alberta beef tattooed on their butt cheek. <laughs> That's funny. Um and Canadian, uh you know, the maple leaf tattooed, right? kind of cool makes mm-hmm. uh that's all right too Olympic rings we had um, Katrina lemedo on when the Olympics were happening a few months ago and she got her first tattoo of the Olympic rings not after winning all the gold medals and going to the Olympics but when she became chef de mission which is what she was always wanted to do so I mean again hard work and like next level hard work with her and uh, all those gold medals and speed skating so I you know that's that's the stuff that I guess that's where I get caught up in it. Maybe I just don't have the meaning, Ryan. Maybe that's it. I haven't
1: found the meaning. Yep, you might not, not yet. It mm. might take you a while. I wasn't convinced that I would ever get one until, uh, actually, you know what? I don't even think I can really remember the, the day or the moment that I realized I wanted one, but I knew what I wanted. And once mm. you find that in your heart and you feel it, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite a powerful feeling. And, and, Um, one of the other cool things about tattoos is for artists, it's the best way for them to get their art out there and sell their art. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're an artist, think about this. If you paint a picture, that's hard to sell that on canvas, but if somebody wants it on their body, you can sell it and you can make a good amount of money. You just have to now learn how to use a tattoo gun. So the industry is growing. The stigma around it is changing and you, you might be. Uh, You might find it in your seventies, or you might find it in your twenties. You know, and I don't think there's there should never ever be a rush to get tattooed. You will know the moment in your heart when you want one. Also drunk. That's the thing I found.
0: That's a bad one. Or drunk in Um, Vegas. Yes, that those are the danger
1: zones. Obviously,
0: here here's the difference in opinion that I carry with tattoos versus I think what you carry, based on what you're saying. The perspective I take that I shared with Melanie when Melanie wanted to get a tattoo is I she said, you know, what do you think about this? And there was one tattoo, there's one uh, poem line that I wrote for her that she shared with me that she wants me, my handwriting on the line of the poem and to write the tattoo and then get that tattooed on. That's meaningful, right? I mean, I wrote the line. She loves the line so much that she's willing to get it tattooed on her when, when she got a couple, she got one with her kids, uh, like to symbolize her kids and a couple for herself and, um, you know, um, symbols and stuff like that. And she came to me, she said, but, um, you know, I want to get, I'm, I feel like I'm the canvas, right. And this is the artwork. That's a lot how you described it, right? Like you're the canvas and this is the artwork that you're willing to carry with you for your whole life. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. So my perspective is just this, and this is hippy dippy Shane because this is the way I think. I mean, I'm an existential thinker. I love to study mindfulness and all those things. And you guys know me well enough who listens to the show. And if you're new to the show, welcome to the introduction of who I am, is that I, I love the mindful study. Uh, it's deeply rooted in the core of the way I like to treat people and deeply rooted in the way that I like to live. And the difference is, Ryan, is my perspective is you see yourself as the canvas and there's art to be, to be shared. I see you as the art and that's the difference, right? Is that I said to Melanie, I said to but to Melanie, to me, you are the art. You are the work of art. Your skin is the work of art. And I think that's just the difference in perspective that I take.
1: It's a great I mean, I love I mean, it. It's a great perspective. I, I think that I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's just, um, uh, I art is always perspective. And uh, uh, one, I think the, the summary, uh, this text from uh, Jasper, this is my favorite part about my tattoos mm-hmm. already. Is tattoos Sometimes. mark a time? This is what he says. Tattoos mark a time in your life on your skin. They don't have to be deeply meaningful. It can just be something you like, but years later, you'll look at that tattoo and remember that time in your life. And I agree with that. They're marks of accomplishments. They're like little time capsules. Um, my first tattoo will absolutely when I'm later in life, I will look back on that and remember my youth. This will be like a marker for that. And I guess that helps tell the story of who I am. And that's one of the exciting parts, but I think you raise a great point about we are all art. Absolutely. But, um, it also gives you a kind of a confidence. I don't know. Maybe. I when I you like feel, look at You America feel, I know, head, I, you I, I you feel like feeling. a badass.
0: That's what it is. Like, I
1: feel like a badass. And Laura, when Laura saw this tattoo, Laura's like, Yep, you're ten percent hotter now. Ten percent, that's a good margin. Ten yeah. percent hotter from some ink? i it's worth it.
0: I mean, hey, you're also fighting against Star Wars and Lego here, so you need every, I know every I little know. piece of badass you can get. This is The Shift Podcast. The news overnight, rockets coming down close to or in Odessa. Our um, geography always needs a little bit of help with this one. Hannah Shalist is in Odessa with Ukrainian Prism, and, uh, and Hannah joins us. Now, Hannah, uh, thanks for being here, first of all, and I just want to check and make sure that uh, you're okay after all this overnight last night.
3: Um, good morning. Yes, the night was definitely uh, difficult. I would say that the last few days were really difficult for Odessa because there's been approximately 20 missiles uh, um, against the city. And uh, the yesterday been more or less OK, but we've been waiting for the night fireworks as we started uh, because uh, definitely uh, uh, Mr. Putin wanted something uh, after are uh, uh, being signed. So uh, during the night, it's been uh, almost midnight, uh, when there were very, very heavy uh, explosions. And
0: uh, Hannah Shalist is in Ukraine, and uh, she is on the Internet every now and then. It does drop out. Um, we will get her back. We always uh, seem to do just that uh, in the conversation that she's sharing with is sharing with us here is of the missiles last night. Okay, Hannah, please continue just as you were.
3: Yes, I just said that uh, like the whole day being quite a calm, uh, but we definitely expected something by the time that Joe Biden been signing the land lease. and it's exactly happened 10 minutes after he uh, made it, so additional eight missiles been against uh, the city, and uh, unfortunately few of them uh, managed to aim, uh, so as a result, at least one very big trade center been on fire the whole night, and a uh, uh, few other civilian objects. So that's quite an interesting that the Russians announced that it was the uh, uh, military storage. Uh, but in uh, uh, practice, favorite trade center with the Zara, Manga, Mark and Spencer, all these regular uh, brands. Uh, but uh, who knows? Probably after they've been prohibited in Russia, they also became the military storages.
0: Uh, yeah, it's interesting, Hannah. We've also read that hypersonic missiles uh, dropped from an airplane, which I don't know if that's new. I mean, that's new information that i've sort of seen as as this unfolds i mean we have hear we've heard that most of those missile strikes were coming from submarines inside the black sea uh do you have any insight onto uh, where these are coming from are they are they coming from you know the the east side are they coming from airplanes are they coming from boats
3: Um, We already had the uh, uh, air attacks uh, with the long-range missiles, including the uh, hypersonic missiles from different types, uh, I mean, from different regions and against the different regions in Ukraine. So that is not the first time. Uh, There are several directions from where they're usually coming. Uh, They can be as far as the Caspian Sea. There were several attacks from uh, uh, Crimea, approximately, if you look over there. And there were several attacks like these just from the mid of the uh, Black Sea. So from the territorial waters.
0: Wow. Um, that's amazing. And uh, it's really amazing from the Caspian Sea. I mean, that's quite far. But I guess that's what the whole point of all these things, and what they're supposed to do. Um, Thank you for that. glad you're okay. Uh, I guess suppose uh, I was wondering if you could tell us what that what does that look like for you? Right? I mean, so you I'm assuming And please just correct me as I'm assuming you go to bed and it's you, you hope that you're going to get a full night's sleep. And then uh, Um, is it air raid sirens? What do you hear?
3: No, the air sirens, that's something we already used like only on uh, um, Saturday, we had 11 air sirens, air raids uh, during the day. Uh, So uh, sirens, it is something like just to be prepared uh, but uh, originally yeah the explosions were so heavy that uh, my dogs uh, reacted and I needed at least to calm down them and uh, then for quite a long time you cannot go to sleep because you're just checking news you're checking all social networks trying to get official and unofficial information about where the uh, targeted uh, do we have any wounded or killed people what is happening around so I would say that uh, after any type of such attack at least for two hours you are completely out you cannot sleep even that I'm not very nervous or panicking in person, but that is just the necessity to get any type of the information to understand what is the uh, real level of destruction or what are the casualties of such attack.
0: Uh, In Kiev this weekend, Canada reopened the embassy, although it's not really functioning like an embassy. It's it's just more uh, symbolic than anything with Canada's Prime Minister showing up and being there with um, President um, Zelensky. And uh, I was curious your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I don't want to make this all about Canada, but we do get curious as Canadians as to the way uh, other countries look at us. And you and our other friends in Ukraine have been very clear that, you know, um, Canada seems to be uh, in the positive column of, of of things that are helping, even though there's more to be done. What is the word about the prime minister uh, showing showing up in, in Kiev?
3: You know, each uh, such visit is very important, uh, first of all, psychologically, demonstrating the uh, support uh, for Ukrainians. But also that is very important because the leaders of the different countries uh, have a possibility to see everything where they're organized. You know that when you see the level of destruction in some small town uh, on TV with the small picture or you are standing just in the middle of that town, that is completely different uh, um, feelings that you have. So that is really important when everybody is coming, especially as far as uh, um, Canada, uh, even that Canada is very close to our hearts. But geographically, we understand that to organize such visit is much more difficult than from the neighborhood Poland, especially with the current security uh, logistics that we have. And uh, uh, definitely it's been very important that together two leaders participated in the J7 uh, meetings just from Kyiv. That's also been very symbolic and uh, very emotionally important. And at the same time, uh, reopening of the embassies, even that we knew that probably they're not functioning as they used to, but we already had 21 embassies who opened. By the way, there are three embassies that didn't close during the war at all in Kiev. They had their offices still there. But uh, others, uh, the more embassies are returning back, the more they are um, signaling that uh, definitely they would like the life to return uh, to normal, that probably they see less uh, threats and risks for kiev as a capital to be uh, back there
0: do you know offhand which three embassies didn't close
3: uh poland turkey and vatican
0: really hey eh? um that's fascinating uh absolutely fascinating of a look of, of what's going on hannah shalist is uh, in odessa ukraine and victory day as uh, they call it in russia on monday there's been so many. Um, we just had a piece on, Hannah, that I wish uh, you had heard a couple of ex-Soviet soldiers uh, speaking to what is going on and uh, not very, um, are very eloquently clear of how they're dissatisfied uh, with everything else. A couple of old guys uh, talking about it. Doesn't seem to be anything that's come out of, uh, victory day that was threatening. If anything else, some people have interpreted it as an invitation for diplomacy because there was nothing sort of embedded into the rhetoric, if you will. Um, what is the look of Ukrainians over what was said and what was done? Or do you just try to shut that out? I would assume you pay it be, I would assume you pay attention to it.
3: Yes, uh, definitely. We expected a lot from the uh, uh, speech of uh, Mr. Putin and also from the parrot, because it's always very symbolic for the Russian leadership, uh, these uh, military parrot to demonstrate the power, what they have. And there were a lot of very interesting uh, details, like, you know, devil is in details, and that's what we uh, uh, pay attention First of all, what we uh, really paid attention, that the head of the general staff was not present at the military parade, and you can imagine how seldom this can be. The second thing that we um, noticed is that the air force parade being cancelled at the very last moment, and that is a demonstration that um, at least half of the newest uh, airplanes being been just shot in uh, Ukraine, so it, it would be impossible to make a nice air show as it used uh, to be. Then you had uh, a very uh, symbolic speech that had been not the glorifying speech as uh, we expected. So there were two versions, let's start from these. Uh, one uh, um, group of experts said that Putin would announce the, the mass mobilization, so he would announce full-fledged war. And uh, others were talking that probably he would announce some victory, the real victory by the Victory Day. As a result, nothing happened, no mass mobilization. Uh, Because we see there is no uh, public support for this. But at the same time, there is uh, no victory because he couldn't uh, demonstrate that he really occupied or got any gains with the mayor cities. Even Mariupol, that he tried so heavily for the last uh, weeks, uh, uh, still his forces are not controlling it. So as a result, it's been uh, uh, the speech of a very unsatisfied man, the man who is trying to find excuses for his uh, uh, war crimes. And that's been quite, a, you know, uh, um, interesting. I would probably use this word, because uh, such type of the speech uh, makes you to think, okay, what is the next? What is his plans? Uh, will he try to regroup and find the new variants uh, where to attack? or he will be trying to um, a little bit slow down, uh, at least uh, um, in the uh, different regions. But unfortunately, that's definitely um, uh, just showing us that the war would continue, that the 9th of May is not done, for it.
0: Do you at least take a little bit and celebrate the fact that he did not declare war? Is that part of the conversation, too? Is that, well, at least he didn't declare more war? Uh,
3: let's be honest what is happening now it's already a full-fledged war doesn't mm-hmm. matter that he calls it special military operations that's quite an interesting if to be honest you know uh, i would say you that for the last 30 years probably we didn't see any conflict where the war uh, was formally announced as we used to. So you can exactly say what is the um, first day of the First World War, or what is the first day of the Second World War. But with the last 30 years, uh, it's very difficult to say. Sometimes you can say with the first attack. But nobody is announcing war as in the past. Here, it was important for us uh, uh, announcing of uh, mass mobilization. Because what Russians definitely better, that is number of people that they can have. That is not the quality of fighting or quality of weapons. That is, first of all, the number. And definitely, if he would be able to accumulate a lot of forces, they will be a cannon folder, but at the same time, that is something to uh, go ahead. And uh, as for now, uh, our, that's not something that we can uh, oppose to this. Uh, as soon as he didn't announce this mass mobilization, first of all, it's uh, shows us that probably the war will be at the same scale as now, so not intensifying. But at the same time, it is demonstrating that he is afraid of the reaction inside of the society. Even that so many Russians support this war, but support this war by arms of uh, military, that is one thing. To send your son for this war, that is completely different.
0: It is fascinating. Um to look at it that perspective so thank you for sharing it and I, I it makes sense when you describe it that way now uh, the attacks on Mariupol uh, seem to have uh, uh, subsided somewhat in what's been going on there it's incredibly ironic the way that I would say it in English it's a little rich for um, for Russia or for Putin to be celebrating you know the Mariupol liberation in World War II. Uh, the day, you know, the day after he finished trying to obliterate it and not let people get out. Um, how does, how, how do you see that?
3: You know, on Saturday, um, no, it was Sunday. Um, it was the press conference of the uh, Azov style defenders. Uh, more than 100 journalists uh, have been invited to Zoom and I was lucky to join with one of my friends as well. And we were just talking and listening to the moods of those who are still uh, um, in the basements of Ozov Stalin, those who are protecting and defending, uh, who've been defending civilians uh, for all these uh, uh, months. And you know that is tremendous people, that is tremendous stories uh, about the resolution and resolvement to, uh, to fight and defend, not because they are crazy heroes, but they are saying, uh, you know, one phrase really shocked me. They said, please don't waste our sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And that was so important because they perfectly understood uh, that uh, Russians don't want them to get out from there, that uh, none of the agreements would work, that maximum what they can do is to negotiate the evacuation of civilians. But at the same time, they really would like for others. And he talked to uh, this officer both about Ukrainian government and about international community, that please use this time, try to do something, try to demonstrate that Ukraine would fight for each inch of uh, the territory. That don't waste uh, uh, all those sacrifices of our officers, our doctors who've been killed in the Azov-style uh, um, plant. Uh, and that was so touching, and that is definitely one of the reasons, it seems to me, why Russians are not winning, because they underestimated the will of uh, uh, regular people to, uh, to protect their land, to defend their people, and uh, um, to be a regular hero, as they said. So to be a hero, it was not their choice. Uh, It was unfortunately uh, the fate.
0: Now, last week, Hannah, we were talking about uh, a group leaving Mariupol. Uh, You had had suggested to us or described to us that it was a three to four hour trip on a normal day, Uh, still quite the trip for them to get out. It was almost a full day or, or more. And it had nobody had heard of them just yet. If I read the articles properly this weekend and it was the same group of people, did they make it out? And was everybody okay?
3: There were several groups almost daily. We managed like by 100 people probably to evacuate. Uh, As a result, the United Nations announced that approximately 500 people being evacuated. But you need to understand that it is uh, um, uh, civilians at the Azov plant, but there is also civilians from Mariupol city itself, and also the some villages around. So as for now, we have more or less confirmed approximately 600 people. There are still thousands in uh, Mariupol, somebody more safe, somebody less uh, safe. But we also have approximately 400 wounded soldiers being there, and Russians are not allowing to evacuate them, despite the requests from the United Nations and other um, mediators. So uh, um, definitely, as for now, at least some group of civilians with kids left. But what is really important, again, like, you know, devil is in details, except of that time that it takes. Um, they need to pass several so-called filtration camps on the road. So those who are in the bus, evacu- uh, that evacuate them, Uh, They can be stopped at several block posts of Russian forces. They are checked. They can be undressed, checking for their tattoos, checking their telephones, asking them. And for example, now we have a big scandal because it was one uh, doctor. Uh, Yes, she is in the past military doctor, but she was together with her four years uh, daughter. So the daughter was sent in the bus to the next uh, block post. And uh, uh, this woman, uh, this young woman, uh, was left at the filtration camp. So mother and daughter being separated uh, just during the evacuation by the Russian uh, forces at one of the blog posts when they were going from uh, Mariupol to Zaporizhia.
0: Wow. Absolutely incredible. Um, Hannah Shalas, PhD, Ukrainian prison in Odessa. Um, if I can, Hannah, uh, I'm going to change the topic just briefly here uh, to something fun and playful because it's real life. Uh, Benjamin, your dog, last week, um, woke up all in... <laughs> panic and decided to say hello to all of Canada here while we were talking cause you're connecting from home. Uh, he's become quite a little bit famous. I just wanted to acknowledge for you how many messages we received about Benjamin and how everybody truly appreciated. Um, uh, the fact that he uh, shared showed up and shared his opinion and and uh, how nice it was to hear from him So if Benjamin ever gets the chance or decides to bark his, uh bark so loud again uh, He is more than welcome as far as we're concerned <laughs> So I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that little piece of your life with us
3: He's just sitting nearby and as soon as the phone is not calling uh, he's he okay. He tries to behave He knows what does mean the TV interviews.
0: Oh, that's good. That's so good um yeah and I mean talk to Benjamin I mean there was the uh, the dog the a uh, patron dog that that got saluted with a medal in Kiev uh, this weekend which is a touching a touching moment uh, for the dog and for the president of Ukraine and the Prime Minister of Canada um uh, tell Benjamin that uh, I look forward to him getting his medal too.
3: Yes, uh, that patron, uh, uh, he's really fantastic. He became like a mascot of our emergency services in Chernigiv. Mm -hmm. It is the town on the north of the country. He is the mining dog. And uh, I would say that now our post office even considering to create a special postmark with his picture.
0: Really? Hey. Oh, that's so good! I like that story. That's neat. I mean, he's become famous. I mean, it was it was remarkable. Uh, the uh, the work they they gave him, and uh, there was one story description we had about about a patron that that with all of the explosives that have gone off in these areas, the amount of focus and training it takes to be able to uh, separate what is active explosives in the mines close by with just the smells of bombs going off in recent days and weeks. Um, is quite remarkable in the world of dog training, so it's a fascinating story, it's it's really neat.
3: And consider that he's not a professional trained dog, he's just a, a dog of the son of the one of the emergency workers, so really? he's been uh, bought for exhibitions and for fun, and just with these two months he's been trained on the ground de facto, so he's not that's a great. professional dog that's been breeded for this.
0: That's so good. Uh, thank you for so much for sharing your time with us again, uh, Hannah, and more understanding as always. I appreciate you very much and your honesty and generosity with your time uh, with us here. Thank you. Thank you. This is The Shift Podcast. I hear on The Shift, one of the conversations that we've had time and time again is the conversation around the health system. And, um, and we wanted to dig her deep and, uh, deep, dig, dig deeper. <laughs> there it is. Come on, brain. Don't fail me now. Speaking of a uh, health system, my brain needs some help. Um, we need to dig deeper into that conversation. Here's why cost of living is going up. We've had this conversation many, many times. So people will start to make different decisions with their health. Won't they? Uh, we are going to see this on a grassroots in our lives level. People will not eat the same way. People will probably not go for that extra massage because they're spending more money on gas, right? The simple things, the littlest, simplest things are going to impact us now what happens when we show up to our health practitioner and they're not okay that's where this conversation starts Ivy Lynn in joins us here on the shift professor school of sociological and anthropological studies at the University of Ottawa which is studying people as far as I understand it and leading the uh, Canada Health Workforce Network Um, Ivy thank you for being here Uh, that's a lot that's a mouthful that's a lot of big words um, studying the people, in this case, the health practitioners, um, the state of our health really is fundamentally where that boils down to. Help us understand what you're up to.
4: Excellent. Well, thanks so much for the invitation to speak to this really critically important issue. Um, I think oftentimes when we go to, um, we access healthcare. Um, I mean, that is through the health workers, you know, that we see. I mean, there isn't a system outside of the health workers. You know, people talk about hospital beds. Well, a hospital bed is just a mattress without health workers around it. And so, you know, if we need any type of care, uh, whether that be, you know, to address our mental health needs, which are growing during the pandemic, whether um, there's the care that we've put on hold, Uh, While everybody has responded um, to the pandemic and whether we're on a surgical wait list or, you know, types of screening, we are all going to need to get care from a health worker. And our health workers have been working extremely hard uh, during the pandemic, uh, often with uh, without a lot of attention to, um, you know, their own mental health needs. And um, and this has gone on for a really long time. And so there is exhaustion. Uh, there's what, you know, people are referring to as the great resignation and, um, you know, they're really reassessing whether or not healthcare is the place for them, um, because they care for others and they're not exactly sure whether or not they're, they are being cared for themselves.
0: That's gotta be the worst feeling in the world. would be going in and spending 10, 8, 10, 12 hours caring for other people and then feeling like your employer doesn't care for you. Um, that would be the absolute worst experience for me now. Is this a problem that is only from the pandemic or is this a cause and effect scenario where we had a fractured system and exaggerated by the pandemic now has kind of broken it down? I always say this, let me preface, healthcare uh, practitioners are the worst at enabling this problem. And I mean that in a loving way because they will do whatever it takes to make sure the people are okay. And what happens with that is an extra 15 minutes here to make sure that that person's okay before you leave or to talk to that family member or to get this little extra phone call done and they go out of their way to do these extra things. What it exposes is a system that is quite broken and a series of band-aids that these people do cover up, although well-intended, doesn't serve the greater picture of them realizing how good they have it, if you will, the health employers of the world.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely what's going on. And there's a term that we use for that. It's called the caring dilemma, right? You are caring in a context um, that doesn't really care for you. Um, And the most important thing to health workers in in terms of their own sense of well-being and their sense of commitment to to patients um, is to make sure that they can deliver the best care possible. And that is the moral injury that many of them are facing right now is that they simply cannot provide the care that they want to, that they were trained to do. And that is a very difficult thing for them to come to work and have to experience that over and over and over again. So that is the caring dilemma. Uh, that they are experiencing and yes they try to keep everything together and they're socialized and in some cases they are responsible you know from a regulatory and licensing perspective uh, to you know to kind of keep this system held together there was a presentation that i did and it was this really great um, cartoon and I, i wish i knew who who drew it but it's got a picture of a health worker who's holding on to two remaining strands from a very thick rope And that's what healthcare workers are really trying to keep together this system. And I don't know how much longer they can actually keep that going.
0: It's tough, right? Mm -hmm. I always sort of, the way that I say this in conversation is if you don't get it, that's okay. If you don't get it, uh, translate the topic, transfer the topic to a, a different situation. Put it this way, a truck driver who's been driving too long and is tired while they're driving. A pilot that just got off another flight and now they're expected to fly this plane of people to here and it's been too much. There are all kinds of standards and regulations on what can happen there. And um, they would never expect a, a pilot to fly a plane here and consult with another pilot over there and, right, and to do all these extra things while they're flying an airplane. And we see these things happen in healthcare. In all of these examples, lives are at stake. So, how do we get through this? Because Ivy, uh, Politically, so politically charged, and this is what you're hopefully inspiring people to do is to get involved is um, sometimes there's people that have their own personal agendas present. that's a human thing uh, that this anthropological part of you must really that must drive you crazy. Uh, but at the same time, there's not enough money. I mean there's just not enough money to make it happen. Now that doesn't excuse the reckless, careless spending of money in the wrong places. Um, but if it comes to just throw more money at the problem, I don't see that's the, a solution because they've done that before and, and nothing came out of it. You're, so the efficiency sucks, frankly.
4: You're absolutely right. This is not a problem that is going to be solved with more, more money being thrown at um, the problem without a clear idea of you know what's the problem that we are trying to solve. Right. So the bonuses that are being, you know, frankly, thrown at um, healthcare workers, this is not the issue that's going to keep them in the system. I come back to, you know, the issue that really breaks down health workers is that they are not able to provide the care that they want to provide and have been trained to provide and frankly should be providing. But we need to create the context for that. The most expensive situation is what we are doing right now. I'll repeat, this is an industry which costs across Canada, 187 billion, 8% of our GDP. And we have no data that we can use to plan in a cogent way, This would absolutely not happen. If you want to translate that, you know, to listeners, I mean, we wouldn't do our household budget in this way. Um, You know, my my brother and my father before him, who farmed, would simply be out of business if they managed the system in this way. This is 8% of our GDP. So what we are doing now is making decisions in the dark. We are throwing money where it is not going to have the impact. So we need to really regroup and say, what is the main problem? How can we go about solving that problem? And that may require a variety of different types of solutions because this is not just one problem. It's a complex problem. It's going to need to have multiple solutions. So for example, you know, the, um, there was a public opinion poll that we did uh, that looked at, you know, what the public thinks about this. They're very concerned about the health, the mental health of health workers, like nine out of 10 of them. So they get it. They're also concerned about what that means for them in terms of their ability to access care and the quality of care that they get. And that's like, you know, eight out of 10 are really concerned about that. So they have to take that concern and make it a political issue so that it gets solved and that there becomes discussions. And what other countries do is they collect much better data on the health workforce to plan in a much more thoughtful and considerate way so that you're not reacting by throwing money at a problem. You are proactive. You are understanding where a problem is going to come from. Could we have predicted the pandemic and the impact that it had? No, but other countries that have much more robust data and intelligence system is what we call them. Help decision makers make better decisions right now. Decision makers are making a decision in the dark and it's having an impact on the health workers and it's having an impact on the public and Everybody deserves better. The public deserves better. Health workers definitely deserve better. And so, again, I come back to the fact that this is not a problem that is going to be solved quickly with money. It is a problem that has multiple roots. And we are going to, have to, we're going to have to implement a multiple intervention strategy that's based on what is actually going to work.
0: So how do we do that? Because what we are represented by in this country, I'm being, this is a very broad stroke. We're represented by three very clear parties. One party is spend more money on healthcare, which we in this conversation have sort of determined that that's not the solution. We've done that. The other party says spend less money on healthcare, which We've seen that happen and that doesn't work and then the other party says we're going to fix health care and then they go fix something else and don't ever do anything about it So that's a broad stroke about politics pretty fair ball, I would say and um, So how in the world do we inspire a politician to to fix this when politicians? Seem to um, be part of the problem.
4: Well, I'm going to add another wrinkle into your description of the political (laughs) context because yes There are political parties and we also have a division of responsibility between the federal government and the provincial and territorial governments. Oh yeah, right.
0: Yeah, that's so really multiplied it compounds. To
4: note, it's really important to note that healthcare is not the is not only the responsibility of the provinces and territories. It's really important to note that the federal government does have a role to play. You know, and that's beyond the fact that the federal government runs, you know, the fifth or sixth largest health system, right? Covers you know, First Nations. It covers, you know, those in the RCMP, the armed forces, you know, those who are incarcerated. So the federal government does that. That's so poorly, by the way. So it's first of all important to note that there are shared responsibilities for health care between the federal government, the provinces and territories. The federal government has, to be very honest, really quite absent in the case of the health workforce. If you look on the website for Health Canada, there hasn't been anything posted on health workforce or health human resources is the term that sometimes gets used in Canada since 2011. There has been no update. And even that update wasn't much of an update since 2007. So that is irresponsible. Again, I come back to 8% of Canada's GDP. GDP. No other OECD country manages their health workforce, whether they're a federated system, you know, where there's always a balance of powers between, um, you know, the regions like the states or provinces and territories and um, a federal government. Australia doesn't do this. The United States doesn't do this. Other, And I could talk about other OECD federated systems.
0: Yeah. And so what I hear there is I hear that When the federal government's not doing their part, it starts to even create competition between provinces, which makes this even worse.
4: Absolutely. So this has to be a coordinated response because every province and territory is going through a crisis and we can't solve that crisis from Alberta, you know, taking from Newfoundland and British Columbia, taking from Ontario, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And Quebec is also not an island onto itself. Their, Their health workers move as well. And so it needs to be a collaborative and coordinated response, but the federal government absolutely needs to have a role. It needs to work in collaboration with the provinces and territories about what that collaborative role could and should be, right? What are the tools that the provinces and territories and the federal government's own health system, what do they need in order to make better decisions? I mean, We're a big country by landmass, but we're a small country in terms of population, right? And it doesn't make any sense for us to be recreating the wheel across all of the provinces and territories. We already collect standardized data through Statistics Canada. We can collect standardized data across jurisdictions And across different health practitioner groups to do much more integrated planning that focuses on sectors of need mental health care, older adult care, acute care, long term care. We need to focus on those different sectors. And therefore, you know, health workers don't work by themselves in a silo, but our data, you know, sure, are siloed. So it means we can't interact. They're siloed by jurisdiction, they're siloed by profession. So we need much better data, and the federal government can play a role in data. They already do, and they could do a much better job in terms of health workforce.
0: Okay, so uh, get involved by getting in front of it. Now, systematic change is always sort of hard, that's for sure. Um, you have people with different careers, different professions, and you have a government right now that's trying to do deals to be popular about pharmacare when, if you ask anybody, uh, they will tell you that mental health is more important. Now, that's anecdotes, that's not scientific data, but you go ask a mental health practitioner how much help they get, and they get a lot less help than the pharmacies do, right? So... Um, the economics of it, we get stuck back in the same thing, the exact same, the exact same um, political parties that say throw money at it, or don't throw money at it, or whatever, are the same ones that are throwing money again at an economic booster, not necessarily at mental health. And we've listened for two years about all of these, you know, the Prime Minister and everybody, all the health ministers across the country, come out and say, You know, you know, take care of each other. We need to do this. We need to be there for each other. We're all in this together. All of these great marketing talking points. And as a society, we're looking at them cross-eyed saying, yeah, but I can't afford $300 an hour for. And by the way, there's nobody on the on the helpline after 5 p.m. Right. Um, so I don't know how many problems happen between lunch and, and dinner time, but it seems like that in some cases, I'm exaggerating for emphasis. Um, in some cases, that's the place where you get help. So how do we cross that bridge? Ivy, this is, I mean, this is massive, but at the same time, so integral to um, make the change because it's kind of like we owe money on a credit card and we just keep paying the interest. Really?
4: Absolutely. This is absolutely the way that it's, um, that that it's being approached. Um, so I want to come back to the issue about mental health, because that's so critically important. This issue about, you know, um, it being expensive. So take, so the story that I want to tell you is about what happened in Australia. And this is prior to the pandemic. Um, but so they had a very similar system uh, in terms of every province and territory, they call it sort of states and territories in, in Australia, were doing their own thing. And um, along came what they call their Productivity Commission, which is sort of similar to um, an Auditor General's report or a Parliamentary um, Budget Officer's report. And they were saying, oh, my God, this is really inefficient, it's risky, and it's incredibly expensive. We should be doing this in a much more coordinated and collaborative way. So that was the impetus for the changes that they made. In Australia, It was an economic reason. So I really wanted to kind of, you know, hit home that story. When we come to the issue of mental health care, this is an area where we know almost nothing in terms of who mental health and substance use health workers are. We don't count any of them. Most of them are not regulated. Most of it is in the private sector. So when you talk about the principles of the Canada Health Act, none of those really apply to mental health care. So we have growing needs. We have a system in terms of mental health provision that is worse than the United States. It's more privatized than the United States. We have less coverage than those in the United States. So when we pride ourselves on our Canadian healthcare system, um, that is definitely not you know, happening in mental health care. So coming back to my conversation is that, you know, this is this is an elephant. You know, for us to, ch- uh, it's a, it's an elephant-sized challenge. But the way that you eat an elephant, and nobody should eat an elephant, is one bite at a time. So let's start, you know, with a sector that needs the most work. And maybe let's leapfrog in that area. Let's collect better data across the regions. Let's do planning around mental health. That would be a really important Way to kind of take this big problem, parse it off into smaller uh, ways that you could move forward, and that would be high yield and high impact um, because we can't we can't expect there to be a system for for um, the public's needs um, if we don't support support it.
0: So, what's the first bite we take? How do we do it?
4: Okay, so I would say that the first bite that we take is we we take this as a sector and we try to understand and figure out who is in this sector. Let's understand all the different providers. Let's count them. Let's also understand where are they providing services? Is it in the public sector? Is it in the private sector? Is it mixed? Who's covered? Who's not covered? Right. I mean, they're going to have some very interesting conversations around dental care. And so we'll need to also like look there in terms of who provides what and who's covered for what and how do we shore up, you know, who's uh, supported, um, I would apply the same thing uh, to mental health care. The federal government can really support uh, what we call sort of the minimum data standard. So these are the least, this is the, the shortest list of data that we absolutely need to plan in a sector and let's apply that across professions, across jurisdictions, and then we can gather those data together and create decision-making tools, what we call dashboards, you know? So when you go to Facebook and you see all of the different apps that are available on Facebook, It's that type of dashboard. It helps you to make different types of decisions, right? So what is it that we need to know in this area? What is it by this sector? What does this profession need to know? How much do we need, like how much information do we need to yield into the education system? Do we need to increase enrollments? And if we are increasing enrollments then we need to increase faculty. So there's that um, element. And then if we're going to be increasing coverage, where is that going to be available? How can we provide those services in a much more effective and efficient way? And mental health care is an area where virtual care has really been quite, um, quite promising. I mean, you can't virtual care everything, but virtual care for, for mental health care, though a lot of that was done prior to the pandemic and a lot more can continue to be done in that way.
0: Well, that sounds fantastic. It's a good way to start. I mean, with your workforce hat, uh, quickly here before we finish, if you're looking for a new career, opportunity is a plenty in healthcare.
4: Absolutely. But we have to make sure that we are not just focused on recruitment. I talk about the three R's we need to retain the staff that are there. And that means we need much better jobs, they need much better staffing, they need much better workload. We need The next R is we need to return. We need to return workers who have just left the system, or we need to return workers to the system, people who are here who have international education in health workforce. We need to return them in a sense. And then we need to recruit. But the recruitment needs to focus here because this is a worldwide crisis. And Despite the fact, I mean, we have a shortage, absolutely, but the shortages are much more severe in other countries. So we should absolutely not be going to other countries and recruiting, but we should definitely integrate those who are here that have international education. And that's part of the return step. Retain, return, and then recruit. Not the opposite way around.
0: Yeah, which is the opposite. Remember, we've run out of parkades to build and charge for parking. So that plan didn't work because that seems like, that was the answer to all of the healthcare problems. Build another parkade, charge for parking. Ivy, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Ivy Bourgeois, professor of sociological and anthropology. Uh, anthro- can you say it for me?
4: Anthropological studies anthropological
0: studies. Thank you. University of Ottawa and lead of the Canada Health Workforce Network. We got to get involved. We got to recognize it and we got to acknowledge the demon in the corner and uh, and just get started in conversation. Thanks so much, Ivy.
4: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast.
0: Make sure you subscribe, rate and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CuriousCast.ca.